Good morning again. It's good to be with you all to gather today in a warm place on this cold January day. Hopefully um, we can stay warm. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, we'll be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. We've done many sermons in John so far, and hopefully they've been beneficial to you. And, and as we come today, hopefully, even though maybe some of this story is familiar, we come to it with fresh eyes, with eyes ready to hear what God has to say to us through his word this morning. And, and what we've seen, especially in the last couple chapters, John 5 and, and John chapter 6, we've seen this pattern start to come out of the Gospel of John, where... Jesus, the Son of God, the one that came to save sinners, he, he performs these signs or these miracles, and we'll see seven of them in John's Gospel. And what we saw in John chapter 5 was Jesus perform a miracle. He healed a man that was lame for 38 years. And so Jesus performs this sign, but then there's a misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in John chapter 5, the people that see and witness this sign actually want to kill our Lord. And so there's a misunderstanding about what Jesus came to do and the point of his signs. And in John chapter 5, that led to Jesus going into a long discourse and responding and correcting really who he is and what he came to do. And it's no different in John chapter 6. We saw the feeding of the 5,000. We saw this miraculous provision that our Lord provided by multiplying five loaves and two fish to feed thousands, maybe even 10,000. And we talked about how the people misunderstood the point of Jesus' sign, that they thought Jesus was just someone that could give them another meal, someone that could provide a, a, a way to fill their bellies. And in that way, they're much like the wilderness generation in the book of Exodus and Numbers, where the people were fed this miraculous bread from heaven that God provided, rained down this manna from heaven, and yet they grumbled against Moses and ultimately against the Lord. And so there's a misunderstanding, the very same thing. It's, it's, it's eerie how similar it is between what happened in the Old Testament and what we see today in John chapter 6. And so there's this misunderstanding. We saw a couple weeks ago that the Jews asked this question of our Lord. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? What work do we need to perform? They're looking for a way to work, to earn their salvation, to earn their right standing with God. And Jesus says, this work is that you need to believe. So he points them to faith. He points them to trusting in the one that's sent from the Father, the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself. So that's their first misunderstanding. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at another misunderstanding where instead of asking, what do we need to do? They tell Jesus, they have the audacity to say to him, what sign do you perform for us? <laughs> Almost telling him, what are you going to do now? What's your next trick? What's your next party? What's your next party trick? How are you going to feed us? How are you going to do these miracles for us? And we see Jesus again respond to their misunderstanding. And he says, the sign that you're going to get is me. I am the bread of life. I am the one who's come down from heaven to do the will of my Father. And I'm not going to lose any of the ones that he gives me. I'm going to raise them up on the last day. 
I am the bread, whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And so Jesus is being so patient with these people. They've misunderstood him time after time. And again, in his patience, he responds to them. And we can think to ourselves like, are these people deaf? <laughs> are these people just totally incapable of understanding what Jesus is saying to them? And he's giving them amazing news. He's telling them, you don't want this physical bread that's going to perish, that's going to pass away. I have bread that's going to endure to eternal life. I'm the bread. And yet, they don't see. Yet, they don't believe. And they still question Jesus. And again, we'll see that today. And not only do they question Jesus, but they grumble. They complain against him. They try to cut down what Jesus is asserting here. And we'll see in our text today that even though these people grumble, even though they murmur and complain, that Jesus is not deterred by this. He's not discouraged by this. He actually has an unshakable confidence and assurance in his mission, in his ministry. That despite these people's responses, their misunderstanding, that the plan and purpose of God is going to be done in the life of Jesus and in his ministry and specifically the ministry of the New Covenant. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. We'll begin at verse 41. This is the Word of the Lord. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? But Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We come in weakness, in, in meekness, Lord. We come humbly. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we, we hope, as Alex mentioned, that this new year will bring new opportunity, maybe a fresh start for some of us, maybe new hope, maybe it's a job or family or, or whatever it is, Lord. But if we're honest, a calendar change doesn't change our life, it doesn't change um, anything, Lord. It's, it's just a new year, and, and as great as that is, Lord, we know that ultimately... As we come to this new year, we need more than anything, not a new job or a new family or a new opportunity, Lord. We need a new and better covenant. We need a new and better promise from you that despite our sin, despite our, our pride and our grumbling, Lord, that you have sent your son into the world to save sinners like us and that this morning, as we come to your word, we pray that we would see the glory of this new covenant that your son has brought, 
by which our sin might be forgiven, our hearts might be cleansed, made new, and that this morning we would worship you for your great work that is by grace alone and through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So a simple outline this morning as we look at these couple verses. You can follow along in your handout if you'd like. First, we're going to look at the grumbling of the people, this ungrateful grumbling that they bring before our Lord. And then we're going to look at this idea of total inability, what Jesus talks about in verse 44 there. And then we'll look at this idea of effectual calling in verse 45. So if you want to follow along with me there, you can take notes as you'd like. But so as we come to this first verse, as I said, the, 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 the story has been building. <laughs> the people first ask what they need to do, and then they ask Jesus, what sign are you going to do? And so there's this building tension, this building almost animosity. And it sort of comes to a head at verse 41, where we see that these Jews are now grumbling. Some translations say murmur or complain. That they have sort of brought, this is boiled up to a point now where they're not just asking questions of Jesus, but they're now complaining about what he's saying. They're sort of fed up with what Jesus is saying. They're starting to question it and doubt it. And we'll see that as we study this passage. And so we can see here that they are just like the wilderness generation. The very same word is used in the Greek that the people in the wilderness grumbled against Moses and ultimately against the Lord. And the same word is used, this idea of grumbling or complaining. That just like God had fed the people miraculously in the wilderness, in the same way God had miraculously fed them at this feeding of the 5,000, and yet they are ungrateful complaining, and hard-hearted. And if you go to the book of Numbers, chapter 14, you see that this is no light thing. This is not just like when our kids <laughs> complain about not getting enough food at the table, even though that's not a light thing, but we sort of drown it out after a while, right? <laughs> Mom, I want this. Mom, I want that. Right? We, we sort of drown out this sort of complaining. But... For the people in the wilderness, this was no light thing. That God actually brings judgment on the people because of their complaining. And in fact, the whole generation, it's called the wilderness generation, does not make it to the promised land because of their grumbling against the Lord. And we can see that this is really the heart of unbelief. The heart of unbelief that would rather have the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of Egypt, as the people longed for in the book of Numbers, rather than this bread, this plain bread that our Lord provides and that God provided. The heart of unbelief would rather have these worldly pleasures, these worldly things, rather than have this plain bread from heaven that truly sustains, that won't run out. And we see here that the people in verse 42 want to sort of get in a theological debate or argument, right? They don't want to come to our Lord. They don't want to submit to him as Lord. They don't want to repent of their sins. They, they know, they realize the implications of what Jesus is saying. If he's the bread of life, 
If he's the one that can truly give them life, then they're going to have to leave their old life. They're going to have to die to themselves and come to him. And we see the nature of their complaint or their argument is centered around, really, the incarnation. They say there in verse 42, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How can he say, I have come down out of heaven? They realize what Jesus is claiming. Because he said before, I've come down out of heaven. <laughs> if somebody said that to you on the street, you'd be like, this person is crazy. <laughs> I've come down out of heaven. But that's what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, I have a pre-existence. I, I, didn't, I didn't come into existence when Mary birthed me, that I existed before that. I came from heaven. I've been sent. And they are confused at best and really argumentative at worst. They're saying, we know your parents, Jesus. You didn't come from heaven. You came from Nazareth. You came from Mary and Joseph. We know them. What do you mean you came down from heaven? And so really at the heart of it, what they're doing is mocking the incarnation. We just went through this Christmas season where we're all reminded of why Jesus came, why he had to be born, of a woman to come and to save sinners. And what's amazing and tragic about their complaint is that in their darkness, in their blindness, in their grumbling, they are mocking, really, the very thing that could bring them life. <laughs> the very thing that could save them, the incarnation of our Lord, trusting in Him alone, they're mocking it. It's foolishness to them. As Paul will later go on to say, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And he goes on to contrast this wisdom that they seek after with the foolishness of the incarnation and the suffering and the glory of Christ. That there's something foolish about this incarnation of our Lord. He was, he was a man. He looked like them. He suffered like them. He got hungry like them. And so they could say, how can you say you came from heaven? You look just like us. We know your parents. And so in their blindness, in their darkness, they mock and ridicule the very thing that could save them. So this is the ungrateful grumbling of the people. And so in verse 43 through 44, we see that just as the people in the wilderness despise the bread from heaven, the saying is, biting the hand that feeds you, if you've ever heard that saying, that's basically what they're doing. Just as the people in the wilderness despise the bread from heaven, they are doing the same thing here, and Jesus confronts them. And in verse 43, he says, Do not grumble among yourselves. Do not murmur. Do not complain. And there's a couple different ways people read this verse as this sort of a stark rebuke to them. Is he sort of getting in their face about it, maybe? I almost read it as if he's saying, there's no need for you to grumble or complain. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because of what is said in verse 44. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he sort of explains why. And in verse 44, he says these amazing, profound words. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me 
draws him. That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I think of maybe all the verses that our Lord is recorded to have written, to have written and said that this verse right here might be some of the most difficult for us to understand. And so as we approach verse 44 of John chapter 6, it's important that we come not only with great humility as we come to this word, but also seeking to submit ourselves to what the scripture teaches. And what we see here is that our Lord is teaching on the total depravity or the total inability of man. That there's a lack of ability in man to be able to come to the Father unless they are drawn by the Father. Or we could say it like this, that apart from the saving work of the Spirit of God in the human heart and will and the effectual calling and drawing of the Father, no one can come to the Son. Or as Luther will call this, the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. That in our state of sin, in our fallen state, man is unable to save themselves. That man is unable to save themselves. And what Jesus is doing here in verse 44 is explaining to these people their unbelief. As we've said, they're exhibiting these signs of unbelief. They're grumbling against the Lord. He had fed them with bread from heaven. He had pointed them to the gospel to believe in him. And they're complaining. They're grumbling. They don't believe in the Christ that is standing right in front of them. And so in many ways, Jesus is pulling back the veil and explaining why. And so we can kind of summarize it with these two points. In verse 44, he's explaining the effects of sin and he's pointing them to the remedy that is required. He's showing them the effects of sin on the human heart and will and he's pointing them to the remedy that is required. And as we've already said, the effects of sin are not small. They're not small, light things. And even as, for those of us that have kids, even as we train our kids and teach them about sin and about how to live in this fallen world, it's easy for us to point to out there, that the sin is out there. That we look on the news or we turn on the TV and we see that the sin is out there in the world. And so if we're not careful, we can teach our kids that, that all the sin is out there. <laughs> and so we, we should protect our kids. We should protect their innocence. We shouldn't, you know, just expose them to all the, the heinous things in the world. We should protect them and teach them about the world and the, the ways of the world. But if we're not careful, if we don't show them that sin is in us... <laughs> Sin is not just out there in the world. It is in our very hearts. And as we read in John chapter 3, it's easy for us to think that just that sin is out there and that it's not really in us. And as John chapter 3 says, that the light has come into the world. This is the judgment that light has come into the world 
But what does it say? That people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That this light, this brightness of the glory of God has come into the world, and yet people love the darkness. They love the darkness. Why? Because their works are evil. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden tried to hide themselves from the Lord. They knew they'd sinned against him. They know they had worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And they try to hide themselves and their sin from God. And that's the very same thing that we do. And so these effects of sin have penetrated not just to the world at large, but to our very souls and our hearts. And they've affected our wills. <laughs> our ability to do that which is good is impossible in our state of sin, as our confession says. That because of our sin, we are unable. We, we, it's not just that we're unable. We prefer the darkness. We would rather have darkness than light. And so this is what Jesus is speaking about at the first part of verse 44. But then he points them to the remedy for this. What's the remedy for our darkness? What's the remedy for our inability to come to the Father? The remedy is the drawing of the Father. So we can think to ourselves as we're reading this, no one can come to the Father unless... No one can come to me, sorry, unless the Father who sent me draws him. The question we can have in our head is, if this is true, how can anyone be saved? If no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them, how can anyone be saved? And to borrow words of our Lord from another gospel, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Jesus here points these people to the drawing of the Father. And this drawing is not just an invitation of the Father. It's not just an invite, an open invite. But it is a miraculous, effective, sovereign work of God. That this drawing is the power of God in the souls of his people. And that is what our Lord is pointing to. That these people were, in a sense, they were seeking the Lord, as we saw in verse 24. It says they're seeking Jesus. They're following after him. They're seeking him, in a sense, but they do not believe in him truly. And as one commentator said, if anyone is to truly come to Christ, it is because he has been made willing by the drawing power of the Father. And we, we have to put verse 44 and verse 45 together. We can't separate them. Because what's happening in verse 45 is that even though these crowds who had seen our Lord, had seen his miracles, had maybe even touched him physically, even though they are hard-hearted, they're obstinate, they're complaining, they're unbelieving, even though all those things are true, we see our Lord have a profound sense of confidence and that even though all those things are true, they cannot thwart the sovereign plan of God in saving his people. Even though they are obstinate and hard-hearted, they cannot stop the plan of God in saving his people. And this brings us to our third point in verse 45. 
we see that in verse 45, Christ here grounds his assurance of this fact in the Old Testament. And he says these words, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. They will all be taught by God. What is Jesus talking about here? <laughs> what is he saying? That we see here in verse 45 that Jesus has this confidence. And throughout John chapter 6 we've seen it. What does he say? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will not cast them out. I will raise them up on the last day. I won't lose any that the Father has given me. All that look to the Son and believe in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus is sure about this. There's no question, there's no doubt in His mind. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. Where does Jesus get this confidence? How is He able to say this with such assurance? Because we can think to ourselves, how can Jesus be sure of this? He doesn't know what I did last week. He doesn't know the sin that I've committed. How can Jesus be sure that all that the Father has given to him will come and that he won't lose any, that none will fall away? As we talked about last week, this perseverance of the saints. We see that Jesus grounds his assurance, his confidence, in the promises of the Old Testament. In the promises of the Old Testament. This quotation is taken from Isaiah 54, verse 13. And this is really talking about the promises of the new covenant. That in the prophets, if you look in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31, as we read this morning, Ezekiel 36, there's these promises that the prophets promised that there would come a day when all who are in covenant with God would be taught by the Lord, would have new hearts, would be given the Spirit, would have saving knowledge of the Lord, would have their hearts purified and cleansed, and would have their sins forgiven. If you look at Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 36, You'll see this language of this day that's coming when all will know the Lord. When all that are in covenant with God will know the Lord. And so Jesus here is taking this verse and he's sort of interpreting it and applying it to himself and the present day. And he's saying, this is the confidence that I have that all that are in covenant with God will be taught by God. And this all here is everyone that has heard and learned from the Father, as we see at the end of verse 45. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And this is what we call the effectual call, the effectual calling of God, that this drawing of the Father, this hearing and this learning and this being taught by God is this effective work, or this effective act of God in the souls of his people, resulting in them coming to Christ, believing in the gospel, 
and finally being raised up on the last day. That Jesus here is certain of this fact. He doesn't have a doubt in his mind about what's going to happen. He says, all, they will all be taught by God, and all those who hear and learn from the Father will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. So we can say it like this. All that are taught by God will come to Christ, and all that come to Christ will, be, will believe in the gospel and will be raised up on the last day. And so as we kind of step back and try to apply or, or look at what is the meaning of these verses, what is the purpose of them, what can we glean from these, these verses, two things this morning. The first is we see that salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all of grace. That we, like these people, tend to ask this question, what must we do? What work do we need to perform? And what Jesus is telling these people is that you can't work enough. You can't do enough to earn God's favor. You can't have enough good deeds that outweigh your bad deeds. There's nothing that you can do. You can work your fingers to the bone, but it is not enough to merit or earn right standing before a holy God. And what Jesus is pointing these people to is the fact that it takes a sovereign, miraculous, powerful act of God to save sinners. It takes a miraculous, powerful act of God to save sinners. As we've said, we're not born indifferent to the light. We don't just say, well, I could do with it or I could do without it. What John says is that we love the darkness rather than the light. We love the darkness rather than the light. That we're not born indifferent to the light. We're born hating the light and loving the darkness. And what Jesus is saying here, as he said in John chapter 3, we need to be reborn. We need to be born from above. We need this act of new creation, this new creation light, to shine in our hearts what we might call regeneration, that we might be born again, born from above. That salvation, it's so easy for us to talk about it in these sort of um, common or just kind of passing ways, right? Someone might ask you, how were you saved, you know? How did you come to faith? And so we might say, well, I was at this retreat when I was 14. And, and we sort of say it like it's a regular everyday thing. But what Scripture is telling us is that salvation, properly understood, is a work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of His people, enlightening their minds, renewing their hearts, and washing them of their sins. <laughs> Cleansing them, purifying them. It's not just an everyday thing. It's a miraculous, powerful act of God in the hearts of his people. And this is pointing us to the fact that we can't do this. <laughs> you and I cannot do enough good things to, to cleanse our sin. We can't do enough good things to make our heart right before God. We need God to act. And so we can say that salvation is all of grace. It's not earned. 
It's not merited. Grace is demerited favor. So salvation is all of grace. And secondly and finally, we see the glory of this new covenant. We see the glory of this new covenant. That even though the word covenant isn't used here, right? It's not used in our text. The passage that Jesus is referring to is talking about this new covenant of peace. The verses we read in Jeremiah 31 promise this day of this new covenant that God is going to make with his people. Where all that are in covenant with God will be taught by God. Another way to say that is all people that are in covenant with God will have universal saving knowledge of God. Or we could say they will all be taught by God. And Jeremiah contrasts this with the Old or Mosaic Covenant. That in the Old Covenant, in, in Israel, right? In the people of God, in the Old Testament, even though they were in covenant with God, some of them believed and some of them did not. Some of them knew the Lord. They looked forward to the coming Messiah. They trusted in the mediator that was to come and forgive them. But some did not. Some did not trust in the promise of the seed of the woman. Some trusted in themselves. They had unbelief as we see the parallels this morning. And so what Jesus is doing is very important. And if you guys have your Bibles with me, I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah 54 verse 13. I want us to see something. What Jesus is doing here. Because when you go to Isaiah 54, verse 13, this is what it says. It's talking about this coming day where God will make a covenant of peace, a new covenant of peace that won't be removed. And then he says this in verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Huh. That's not what Jesus said in John chapter 6. What, he said, what did he say? He said, and they will all be taught by God. And so we could look at this and be like, is Jesus misquoting the Bible? <laughs> is he forgetting about the children? Is he, is he misquoting it? Did he forget about what Isaiah 54, 13 says? And what we have to say for two reasons, first of all, Jesus is God, so he's not going to misquote, he's not going to fail to understand the Old Testament rightly or fail to remember it. So that's not what's going on. And John's gospel is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? We believe that the word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Holy men were carried by the Holy Spirit to write these words. So this is not a mistake that John chapter 6 says what it says. And so Jesus here is not misquoting the Old Testament. He's not misquoting Isaiah. He's actually showing us the true meaning of what Isaiah meant when he wrote verse 13. And so Jesus here, in removing the word children here from this passage, he's not removing it. He's saying that what this passage was talking about in Isaiah was pointing to the elect, effectually called people of God in the new covenant. 
that what Isaiah was talking about with this, all children will be taught by the Lord. What Jesus is saying is that actually refers to the people in the new covenant that are united to Christ and know the Lord savingly. That in the old covenant, the way you were brought into the covenant was through birth. You were born into the covenant. You were seed of Abraham. You were offspring of Abraham. What Jesus is saying is that in the new covenant, it's not like that. You're not born into the covenant, but you are born again into the covenant. That you need an act of God to come and resurrect, renew your soul. To be taught by God, what Jesus is talking about here, is to have saving knowledge in our hearts, this light of the gospel, come and show us our need for Christ and the glory of the gospel. And so we could say much more about this passage and maybe we'll get into it more next week. But what we can say is that the way Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament, these promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, they have to be interpreted the right way. That there's types and shadows in the Old Testament that reach their fulfillment in Christ. We can talk about many different things. The land, the priests, the temples, the sacrifices, the children. All those things reach their fulfillment in Christ and in his people. We don't look forward to a physical promised land. We look forward to the heavenly promised land. We don't look for physical priests. We look to the great high priest. We don't look to the physical temple or the physical sacrifices. We've seen that Christ is the true temple and his church in him that offer up their bodies as spiritual sacrifices of praise. So all that to say, as we end this morning, as we come to the end of John chapter 6, verse 45, this should give us great assurance. This should give us great confidence that for all those that have had their hearts renewed, that have this new birth, that have faith in Christ, that are trusting in him by faith alone, we can trust that our sin will be forgiven, we've been given new hearts, and that all those that are trusting in Christ have been taught by God, have heard the voice of the Father, not audibly, but in the word of God and in their souls, and have learned from God, and they will be raised up on the last day. So Jesus has confidence that they will all be taught by God. For those of us that have put our faith in God, have been united to Christ, we have confidence on the last day and today. And so we can come before God even when we sin, even when we fail, even when we struggle, even when we're suffering, and we can have confidence that he will raise us up, that he will draw us to himself, and that our sin will be forgiven, our iniquity cleansed, and we can trust in our Savior. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in John chapter 6, and if we're honest, we, we realize that it's a difficult passage. It's a hard passage to understand and to understand what, is it, what does it mean. But as we come and we, as we seek to submit ourselves to your word, we see that 
we are in great need this morning, that we cannot rely on ourselves, our own ability. We can't trust in any of my words that they have any power to save anyone, but that when your spirit is pleased to work and move in the hearts of your people by hearing the word of God and the gospel, that you will change and renew the hearts of your people. And so we come this morning, Lord, humbly. We come realizing that we are in great need. And we come with confidence, Lord. Not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in our works and our good deeds, but confidence in Christ. Knowing that He has saved us, He has made us new, and that by faith alone we are united to Him and all His benefits. And so we pray, Lord, that You would. Help us to trust in you. Give us faith this morning. And as we look forward to the last day, we have confidence knowing that you will raise us up, that none can be snatched from your hand because you have accomplished redemption for us, justified us, sanctified us, and will one day glorify us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.